Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and the peace of our Lord be with all of us gathered here in worship today, in this room, in the Family Life Center, and to our extended JCBC family worshiping with us online. We welcome you into this time, an amazing time where we have already worshiped. Amen? My word. But today now we turn our attention to the scriptures in Acts chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn with me in Acts chapter 11, and we'll be reading from there. But before we read the scripture, just a a personal word here. You know that for a long time, the way we talk about JCBC is there's room at the table for everybody. That means you are welcome here if you're not welcome anywhere else. And I say that today as a reminder, that's who we are. You are welcome in this spot. Because if there happens to be any L.A. Dodger fan here today, (laughs) you need to know that you are among friends, my sisters and brothers. Yeah. But as we begin, I just need to take care of a couple things first as we begin our scripture. Come on. Go Braves. Right. Go Braves. Listen. What an amazing, amazing day. I understand last night, if you stayed up with the rest of us Braves fans chopping all the way through the game, you may be a little weary. You may be a little tired, a little, a little uh, dozy today. Understand, that's fine. I won't be offended if you sleep during the sermon, as long as you're not offended if I sleep during the sermon. But what a night. And today we turn our attention to Uh, I think maybe the the 12th part of this ongoing series uh, in the book of Acts uh, called Wind and Rain. And today we read beginning in chapter 11 from verse 19. Listen to these words from Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen... They traveled as far as uh, Phoenicia, uh, Cyprus, and Antioch. And they spoke the word to no one except Jews. But among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number of them became believers and And turned to the Lord. Now, news of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God. He rejoiced, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion, for as he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
So it was that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was at Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. This is the reading. Yeah, the, the cry-worthy reading. Yeah, of the holy word of God. May God now add a blessing to the hearing and to the doing of it. Will you pray with me? God, we do pray in this moment that your spirit would be so in and among us that it awakens us, awakens us to what you're attempting to be up to in us and around us even this very day. Lord, we've gathered in this time of worship and many have come perhaps burdened with a great many concerns far more serious than weekend sports. There are family crises. There are health crises. There are business decisions. There is anxiety that we have brought with us into the room. And we choose not to leave it at the door, but to bring it in here with us so that we might lay it at your feet. And in so communing with you this day, our prayer is that we might be transformed. To see and to do whatever it is that you have called us to see and to do in your name. We pray these things in the name of Christ the Lord of life. Amen. So, years ago, I had a friend who was a friend and mentor in ministry. And when he was in college, he went to a big city, big university in a big city. He had a friend and one day they decided that they were new to the city. And they were going to find which donut shop had the best donut in the whole city. So they began on a Saturday morning and they went to some shop. They had a donut and some coffee and it was great. But then they decided, let's make a thing out of this. So every Saturday morning, they would begin their day at a new place where they would try a new donut and a cup of coffee in their pursuit of finding the best donut in the whole city. Word got out about it after a while, and they had other friends join them. Two or three more were added to their number in time. Two or three became, well, 10 or 11, which became 19 or 20 or 25. The, the, the club, the donut club, had grown. Now, not all of them could go at the same time, but there was always a critical mass of those seeking the best donut in the whole city. But as time progressed, Things began to develop within that band, within that pursuit, within that very purpose. Well, one was added to their number who said, you know, I don't really like coffee. Is it okay if I have milk with it? Or maybe some tea or I've brought a latte. Is that okay? And they had to make a decision. Is it only coffee we can drink with the donut? Because different beverages change the taste of the donut in their pursuit to find the best donut in the city. And then other questions would begin to emerge. And they, they began to ask themselves, well, does a donut have to have like a hole in it? Or, or can it have filling or maybe some icing? Can it be a cinnamon roll? Can, could it be a bagel? 
And in time, they literally had to draw up the rules that it took in order to operate this donut club. They had institutionalized to a point in which they needed some bylaws. They made shirts. They then needed dues to pay for some of the merch that they had created for their donut shop. In time, well, the two guys who started the whole thing in pursuit of the best donut in all the city, they grew weary of it. As the great theologian B.B. King would say, the thrill was gone. <laughs> and so you know what they did? They quit. They walked away. Because it had become something so different than what it was intended to be. And so it is with the church of Jesus Christ. In many ways, the church today, especially in America, has become something so far departed from what it was intended to be that it's no surprise at all why so many are leaving the experience that we call church. You may remember a few years ago, I shared with you a groundbreaking study that was produced by the PRRI, the Public Religion Research Institute. It was a groundbreaking study that had taken place over many decades about religious practices in America and how the trend, the shift, has gone in a distressful downward pattern for so long. In fact, in their study entitled Exodus, why Americans are leaving religion and why they're not likely to return. You may recall, because we talked about this in a, in a sermon series a couple of years ago, they, they addressed all the conditions that have led into why people just don't think religiously anymore the way we used to, why our patterns of behavior have changed. And among the great information that we gained from this study, you may recall that they identified six reasons Six top reasons why people today are leaving the, the faith of their childhood, if they even had it at all. Among the six, number six was this, too focused on politics. Folks tired of manipulating the message of faith in order to support a political platform. Another reason was they had traumatic, traumatic experiences in their lives and they, during these traumatic experiences, didn't experience the kind of healing to those wounds in the churches where they sought healing from those traumatic experiences that they maybe even had experienced in church itself, like reason number three, the clergy sexual uh, abuse uh, uh, scandals of the, of the recent decades. Clergy sexual abuse leaves a scar among some and they walk away forever. Or number four, the experience of negative religious teachings about or treatment of gay and lesbian people, 29%. Or reason number five, the family was never really religious growing up to begin with. And reason, the top reason, the number one reason was 60% left because they stopped believing in religious teachings. Now, of all those six reasons that we talked about in depth a few years back, I can get it. I understand why some would walk away for some of them. I would understand 
walking away from a church experience that is too political. I would understand if someone had experienced a wound from the community of faith and couldn't heal from it. I would understand walking away if someone had experienced the clergy sexual abuse scandals, maybe even up close and, and couldn't heal from them. I understand the experience of of going to a church where your son or your daughter or your uncle or your aunt would not feel welcome in that place. And I can understand if you were never really raised religious because we know for certainty if we don't ingrain the pattern of faith practices in our children when they are young, then when they are old, they will depart from them. This is an ancient wisdom, right? All of those I understand, but there's one that I struggle with the very most that 60% leave the church today because they no longer believe in the religious teachings that they were exposed to in it. And I began thinking about that. So for us, we are followers of Jesus. That means that the teachings of Jesus are the teachings of our religion. That is our religion, the teachings of Jesus. And I began asking myself, what, so what is it that's so, so off-putting about the teachings of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some teachings out there that are not Jesus. They pass for Jesus. They're kind of Jesus-ish, right? But what are the, what are the teachings of Jesus that are so off-putting that 60% would walk away because of them? I mean, is it the teaching, uh, friends, let us love one another because love is from God? Is it love your neighbor as yourself? Is it that teaching? Is it forgive as you have been forgiven? Is it that teaching? Or is it, you've heard it said, love your neighbor but hate your enemy, but I say love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you? Is it that one? Or, or is it if you have two coats and you see one who has no coat, give them one of yours? Is it the teaching that says if you see a hungry person, feed them? If you see a thirsty person, give them something to drink. If you see a stranger, welcome them in. If you see someone sick and imprisoned, care for them, attend them. Is it that? Because in all of my years of ministry and more than that, all of my years of walking with Christ, I have never met anybody who has walked away from the faith because of something Jesus taught. But I have met plenty who have walked away because they have met followers of Jesus who did not live out what Jesus taught and they mix the two. I mean, even Gandhi, right? Said, he said, I don't, I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. It's just that so many Christians are so unlike Christ. And he's right. We can be. It's possible if you look up for a moment and take a snapshot of the condition of the church in America today, it's as if we have become something that we were never intended to become. And it's no surprise why some would walk away because what it has become is so far less compelling than the experience of meeting Jesus. And, and some have traced, how did we get where we are? And over the years, there have been different uh, theologians and church historians have, who have described it this way, that, well, this whole movement began in Palestine, you know, it began as an experience with the risen Christ, a life-altering experience that changed everything about the way they ordered their life. They could never be the same. It began in Palestine 
as an experience. But then when the church moved from Palestine to Greece, it became a philosophy, one of many philosophies. And suddenly faith was simply about what you believed, ideas that you assent to. I believe this idea, but not the other idea. So it moves from Palestine to Greece and becomes a philosophy. But then it moves from Greece to Rome and, and Constantinople and it becomes an institutionalized religion backed by the power and control of the empire itself. And then it moves from there into the heart of Europe where it becomes a culture. And to be French is to be Christian. To be Italian is to be Christian. To be Spanish is to be a Christian. It's just the way things are. Fish are in the sea and they don't know they're in the sea. And just as the fish is in the sea and the sea is in the fish, to be in Europe is to be Christian because it had become a culture. But then the church moved to America where it became a business. Business. When you think about what it took to expand the Western civilization in which you and I, like fish, are in the water and don't know we're in water, it takes a rugged individualism. It takes the capacity to dream the American dream and go conquer it, do it, succeed, grow, build. But with that comes a consumer mind. And that consumer mind means that we look at all of life in a way that serves my own personal desires and tastes and interests, all of us. And that means that we, well, we, we begin to do church like we do Costco. And we walk in and we, we try to find something that will satisfy my own personal need and interest. And if my consumer satisfaction is high enough, I will stay. I will invest myself, my time, my money, my interest. But if it's not, it's fine. There are plenty of other options out there. And I'll just move around until I find either some other church or some other organization or some other parachurch or some other event or movement or activity or activity or sport or club or something that will satisfy some hunger that I have and even if it's not Christian, if it's Christian-ish enough, then at least I will have a high return on my investment. Yeah. So, so, so the best example I can think of is this pandemic. Do you know that this pandemic was like God doesn't cause pandemics? Hear me clearly. But in the midst of this pandemic, it's as if the universe itself handed to us on a golden platter an opportunity for the church to shine, to show the world that to be a part of this faith following Jesus means that you can face a global pandemic and hold it together, that you can experience all kinds of crisis and not fall apart because we model for the world that we're held together on the inside by something that was not given by the world and the world cannot take it away. And we had the opportunity in the pandemic to practice radical hospitality with one another, radical generosity where we would give of ourselves so that those who were truly in need would have their needs met. And we had the opportunity in this pandemic to be in this world a non-anxious presence in the midst of the most anxious time. But instead, we fought about masks. 
And we argued and debated about science. I didn't know that there could be versions of science that we could debate about. And we argued about vaccines and how comfortable I am or inconvenienced I may be. And that's why it's no surprise to your pastor why every church I know who's only running about a a, a small percentage of their pre-COVID attendance is like every other business now, feeling as if we're trying to regain our customer base. Does it feel that way to anybody? Is it possible that the church in America needs to repent? Because it wasn't this way in Antioch. When we become something we were never intended to become, it's not only certain that we will lose those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, but it's just not compelling enough to stick around for anybody. But in Antioch, my word, in Antioch. Antioch was this multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual metropolitan center of that region of the world. In fact, the first century Jewish historian Josephus described Antioch as among the three greatest cities in the Roman world. It was there in Antioch that the the first movement of Christians began to populate the streets. You know why? Because they were persecuted in Jerusalem and pushed out into the surrounding countryside and and to the towns and villages and, and cities beyond Jerusalem. And when they moved in, they had experienced something with the risen Christ that they wouldn't shut up about. They had experienced something so transformational in their life that they could not stop talking about how their life was turned upside down by meeting this one, Jesus, the Christ of God, who has restored dignity and reconciliation to all humankind. And because they couldn't stop talking about it, the very first missionary journeys in the history of the church began in Antioch, in that multicultural, multilingual, multi-ethnic center where the church said, now we go beyond our own boundaries to spread the word that has changed the world. And it was there in Antioch where they began to, to be seen as people who ordered their lives differently. It wasn't just that they had this message, like verbal message, this, this, this kind of idea that everyone had to assent to. They had that as well. They had an idea that, listen, you may have thought that you were far off from God, but God has restored humankind by coming close in the person of Jesus. Yes, they had a message. And that message was that you can be forgiven, that life can be restored and you can live eternally. But more than just a message about eternal life, they demonstrated in the way they lived their life that heaven begins now. And we have an opportunity to live with one another before God that is so renewed it's as if Eden has returned among us. And because they lived so differently, they were seen and understood to be a different kind of movement. Yeah, in fact, it was there in Antioch where the passage that we read just a moment ago stands up off the page to me. Because in that passage, we read this phrase in verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord, the Christ. The hand that had at one time 
been placed over the eyes of the blind and restored a man's vision, that hand. The hand that had stooped low and written in the dirt when some woman's dignity was crushed by a, an entrapment, a sexual entrapment plan of Pharisees. Jesus lifted her up. It's the same hand that we read about that was stretched over the bow of a ship. And when the storm could not cease, it's the hand of the Lord that calmed the troubled waters no one else could calm. That hand was on them. That meant they began to do things with their hands and feet that previously only he had done. They began to say things with their mouths that previously only he had said. And in verse 23 of the same passage we read a moment ago, Barnabas, who comes out to see what in the world is going on in Antioch, says when he came, he saw the grace of God and rejoiced. He could see that the grace of Christ himself was in them. And because it was in them, the people who had never met him could know him. After all, this may be the most famous part of this passage is that this is where Christians, the disciples, were first called Christians. Now, if you grew up in church and you stuck around, you realize that's where we got our name, Christians, right here in Antioch. But it's a word that is curious to me because literally the word in that context means little Christs. It does. In fact, and it wasn't always a compliment. It was used as a derogatory expression. Look at these little Christs. They don't know what they're doing, sacrificing their needs, giving up for others. Don't they know they can never accomplish a life worth bragging about? If they do that, they're just little Christs. Look at them go. Later in the book of Acts, Paul is talking to King Agrippa, who he almost convinces to be a follower. And King Agrippa has these words to say, the same word, Christian. Agrippa said to Paul, are you so quickly persuading me to become a Christian? Are you trying to make me a little Christ? Are you trying to make me a little Christ? <laughs> Not so fast. Well, by the time the first century gave way to the second century and St. Ignatius of Lyon, well, Ignatius during that period of time, the Christian name had become so well embraced that it was not something that we only embraced as followers of Jesus. It's something we were willing to suffer indignity for, inconvenience for, and more than that, we were willing to die for the sake of that name. Yeah, It's possible that sometimes we become a thing that we were never intended to become. We come so far away from where we used to be. And first, Peter, one of the latest scriptures of the New Testament, we hear how the development of this idea of being Christian had developed by the time the second century rolls around. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you little Christs, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even a mischief maker. Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear this name. Can I just ask you an honest question? When was the last time that you truly suffered something because you bear the name? Christian. 
And before you're quick to answer, I'm not talking about when were you inconvenienced? When were you frustrated because you said, hey, Merry Christmas, and they said, happy holidays. That's not what I'm talking about. We can't even utter that nonsensical expression of being persecuted in the face of those who gave up their lives for the name of Christ. When was the last time you so acted like a little Christ that you paid for it? Yeah. So fast forward to the Reformation. The great reformer Martin Luther had something to say about this too. Listen to what he said. As our heavenly father has in Christ freely come to our aid, we also ought to freely help our neighbor through our body and its works. And each one, I love this, should become as it were a Christ to the other, that we may be Christ's to one another and Christ may be the same in all. Now, beloved, I want to be very clear. Oh, he wouldn't finish talking, was he? That is, we may be truly Christians. That's Martin Luther. I want to be very clear about this. There is one Jesus Christ. There is only one who could save and redeem each and every one of us from our sins and our own brokenness in a hopeless future. But for what? To simply live eternally? or to also live now as if we are certain that there is an eternity. We are to live as little Christs to one another. The great 20th century theologian and writer C.S. Lewis had something to say about this in the very same way, using the very same language. He said, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose than for us to be drawn into Christ. And in being drawn into Christ, we become transformed into his image day by day, degree by degree, recognizing that we are broken and sinful and we are imperfect, but also recognizing that if we are in Christ, then we, like those first Christians at Antioch, recognize that there is something being perfected in us every day that we wake and every time. We attempt to live for his name. Yeah. So, how do we live as little Christs? What do we do in order to ensure that we are waking up each day to live as little Christs in this world, so hungry and thirsty for healing, so hungry and thirsty for a love that will not let them go despite their own behaviors and choices, how do we live as the little Christs among them? Two things. We fix our eyes on Jesus and we embrace the whole gospel. We fix our eyes on Jesus and embrace the whole gospel. What does it mean to fix your eyes on Jesus? It means to recognize a few things. You know, I've told you before that when I do some premarital counseling, 
Sometimes what I will say to the couple is, you know, when you say, I do, to this person on your wedding day, you are simultaneously saying, I don't, to everybody else. Amen? And in the same way, when you stand in the waters of baptism and I say, what is your sacred confession of faith? And you say, Jesus is Lord. Then you are simultaneously declaring to the universe that no one is Lord but Christ. That if Jesus is Christ and Lord of all, then that means no one else, no thing else, no other interest can command your loyalty of heart, mind, and body. And if that's true, then fixing our eyes on Jesus means a daily practice of so abiding with Christ that you, as 2 Corinthians describes it, you gaze upon him and he gazes upon you. And in your morning, when you begin your day fixed on Jesus, you begin to see the things in Jesus that are so compelling. You will see in him a grace that is sufficient for each day. You'll see in him a patience, even for those who test patience. (coughs) You will see in him, if you fix your eyes on him, everything that is, well, beautiful and lovely and kind and holy and strong. And as you fix your eyes on those qualities of Christ, you begin to recognize in humility the absence of those things in yourself. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) And in fixing your eyes upon him, those things that are unchristly will gradually begin to melt away until then when you rise for the rest of that day, you are living out of a centered core where Christ is the Lord of every decision you make, every conversation you'll have, every direction that you may go that day. We fix our eyes on him. But we don't simply fix our eyes on him. The writer of Hebrews says there's a reason why we do this. He says, let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If we fix our eyes on him just like Christ did, For the sake of the joy that was set beyond before him, he was able to endure the cross. And in the same way, if we fix our eyes upon Christ, we will be able to endure whatever it is that is in front of us. So we fix our eyes on Christ, but we embrace the whole gospel. Now, most of us in Protestantdom, we focus on the good news being our ticket to heaven. And part of the good news is yes, you, are for, you can be forgiven of your sins. You can be restored in relationship with one another and with God, and you can live eternally with him. But the whole message of the gospel is, if that is true, and if Jesus was right that the kingdom of God is not someplace there then, but it's breaking in here now, then those of us who have encountered him will recognize then right now, We live in a way now as if that kingdom is actually coming because guess what? It is. You've often heard me say, it's one thing to be baptized. It's another thing to live baptized. 
To embrace the whole gospel means that you make yourself available to practice the very behaviors Jesus practiced. To implement in your life the very teachings that Jesus commanded us to implement into our lives. So radical hospitality, radical generosity, radical welcome of the stranger, the sinner, the one who is lonely and hurting and sick and dying to make ourselves available to be wounded in our own body for the sake of the wholeness of the other. That's what it means for Christ to be in you. I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live according to faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. Yeah. So, beloved, in this season of hand-wringing in churches everywhere over what will we do and how will we regain our customer base. And, and, and in this season of throwing like programmatic Hail Marys against the wall to see what's going to stick, I tell you, I have never been more steady of heart, more exhilarated in the soul because if just a few of us in this world choose to fix our eyes on Jesus and let the transformation that comes from Jesus take over the way we live in this world and embrace the whole gospel, then we will see revival like we have never experienced it in any of our lives. Because it will not be something that we program, it is something that Christ is doing in those of us who are yielded to him. Yeah, and that, my friends, is the great invitation. At any moment, of any day, you are welcome to yield your life to Christ, to experience the very same thing that those at Antioch experienced and they couldn't shut up about it because he had changed everything. And you're listening to my voice right now in the sanctuary or in the Family Life Center, or maybe you're listening sometime on Tuesday while you're walking on the treadmill, whatever you're doing in this very moment, if there's something in you that is stirring and you wonder if there's, a, there's room for you in this community called Little Christs. I say to you, there is. There is. And all that is required is a yielded heart. All that is required is that you confess you're not perfect. That you confess that you have a way, just like the rest of us, at breaking the beautiful things of God. But in humility, we repent and ask that Christ live in us in such a way that not only redeems us but repairs the world.